am blessed, so blessed to be with you tonight here. Thankful to God for so many who are interested in studying His Word during this midweek Bible study period. And I'm glad you've had a great week. I'm not surprised. I saw the subjects, I saw the speakers, and I know the elders had some great wisdom in putting this theme together and or giving it to Don and Don putting it together. And I'm just grateful to be a part of it and so thankful to contemplate such a wonderful subject with you here tonight. We'd love to have you come see us at the Memphis School of Preaching. Maybe during the month of March would be a good road trip. Our lectureship this year, March 26 through 30, Who is Wise? The world is mixed up about where true wisdom is found, and we're going to be exploring the true wisdom of God's Word and how to live for God on a daily basis. We'd love to have you come and see us, and we're thankful to God for your support and encouragement. I want to say this, I so wholeheartedly agree with the good brother's prayer about needing preachers. Don't you agree that this world, this mixed up world needs some gospel preachers? More gospel preachers. Thankful for the ones we've already gotten, but thankful for the opportunity to train more. And please pray for us as we continue to do that. Every hand in the class went up, except for one little boy. He didn't raise his hand. The Sunday school teacher had asked, how many of you want to go to heaven? And every hand went up, but his did not. So she thought, well, he must not have heard my question. So she asked it again, how many of you want to go to heaven? And every hand went up, except for his. And it was obvious, everyone was staring at the only person not raising their hand. And so she thought, I've got to address this. She said, young man, don't you want to go to heaven? He said, well, yes, I really do, but I thought she was getting up a group to go right now. <laughs> and you know, when I think about that story, I think about how much children sometimes show us what adults are like, because children are honest, and adults might feel the same way, think the same way, but not admit it as openly. I don't know exactly what you're a quotient is on getting ready for heaven and the day that you plan on entering into heaven and whether you want that day to be soon or far away. I understand family desires to work with family members that maybe aren't Christians yet and to try to get them to become Christians and not wanting to leave this world before we get that chance. And I certainly understand those of us who may have wayward loved ones wanting to work with them and plead with them to come back and see that happen before we leave this world. But I know at the same time that there's something so special about that place we're going to enter someday. And you know, big entrances or dating the entry of something is, a, is something we're very familiar with in our culture. Birthdays are all about grand entrance. This is the day I came into the world. Now, we know because we understand Psalm 139 that we're alive, developing within our mother's womb long before we're actually delivered and brought forth. And some cultures actually date the age of someone from the time they've been in the womb, not just the time they were born. But our culture here is generally, this is the day of your entrance, your grand entrance into the world. And if you go to a cemetery... You'll notice on the left-hand side the date of your grand entrance into this world. 
And then after that, there are many different entrances that are exciting. The child's grand entrance into pre-K or kindergarten and the mama crying and having a hard time walking away, perhaps, if she's not homeschooling. And you think about uh, those individuals who are walking into the DMV, grand entrance, and they leave with their driver's license. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. The day that I took my driver's test, I walked out and got in the car, and as I was nervous and backing the car out, I accidentally nicked the car next to me, but it was just slight. And I thought I could keep going. And the driver instructor, tester said, what are you doing? I said, taking the driver's test? They said, "Um, you don't hit a car and pass your driver's test, pull back in. And so I'd been gone about 45 seconds. My dad's waiting inside for me to return triumphantly. And I walked in and he said, what's going on? I said, I hit a car. He said, already? (laughs) You just left. So I waited two weeks. I had to wait two weeks and someone loaned me a compact car. I don't know how my dad convinced them to loan the guy that hit a car taking his driver's test to use their compact car instead of our big old Mercury Monterey that we had. But I remember how defeated I felt. It was supposed to be a grand entrance and a grand exit as I'd enter into the driving world, and I ended up not doing so well. I got to work that night, and my manager at Burger Chef, where I worked, said, I totaled my car when I hit a fire engine the day I took my driver's test, so don't feel so bad. What about the day of someone's wedding where they're waiting for a grand entrance? They're looking expectantly. The the groom is watching. There she comes. Yep, here she is. Here comes the bride. Her grand entrance is there for all to see. All eyes are on the bride. What a great day that is, a day of entry. But you know, the ultimate grand entrance of all grand entrances that you could ever make is not walking across the stage to get your diploma from high school or college. It's standing before the Lord Jesus and having him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Enter, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But before you'll ever hear the words, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, there's going to have to be an entrance that comes before that entrance. And I know this is true because Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount closed it out by saying this, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall what? Enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone that calls me Lord is going to enter heaven on any day. Well, who will, Lord? But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, Matthew 7, 21. And so there can be a grand entrance, but guess what the will of the Father in heaven includes? Hear these words. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot, what's the next word? Enter into the kingdom of God. In order for me to hear the words enter in, I'm going to have to enter in. Prior to that, enter into what? 
enter into the kingdom of God. That's why we read about Philip in Acts 8 preaching in Samaria. And the Bible says when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. And so they were born of water and of the Spirit. They heard the message of the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in water. They were added to the kingdom, the church, the family of God, the house of God. And now what? They live for God until the day that they depart to enter and be with Him. Now, I know that the day we're going to ultimately spend our time looking at tonight is the day that Jesus Christ comes back and splits the sky and every eye shall see Him But do you know there's a sense in which we enter into our eternal realm when we die? Think about this. You and I right now are animated by a soul that lives inside of us that's never going to show up on an MRI machine. No doctor is ever going to take you in and say, we did a CAT scan and here's your soul right here. You see it? No. But I know Daniel 7, 15 talks about the Spirit being in the midst of my body. And I know that the Spirit leaves this body, and that's when death takes place. In fact, Genesis 35, 18 says, As her soul was in departing, for she died. That's Genesis 35, 18 about Rachel. And then we read in 1 Kings 17, 21, this child had died and the young prophet goes up into the loft and stretches out his hand upon the young child and says this, let this child's soul come into him again. Let that soul enter his body again. It had been there in the past. The soul left, thus the body is dead. James 2, 26 So how does life come when the soul animates the body? And sure enough, as this prayer is prayed, let this child's soul come into him again. That's exactly what God did. He sent that soul into that child's body and he revive to live again. He revived. He lived again because that entrance of the soul into the body animated him. Now, when the soul departs from this body, does it enter anywhere? You know that the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, the spirit returns to God who gave it. And I want you to go to Luke 16 with me and notice with you just how this entrance into the eternal realm can even precede the judgment day, because once you die, your eternal destiny is determined already. There's not going to be a, an invitation song on the judgment day to change what your status was when you died. Whatever condition you're in when you die is the condition you'll be in eternally speaking. And oh, how our entrance can be so radically changed by one moment of time when the spirit departs from the body. Now, you know the story of Luke 16, the certain rich man, verse 19. Oh, he's clothed in the best clothes. He has the best food. He fared sumptuously every day. Meanwhile, there's a certain beggar named Lazarus outside the gate, full of sores. All he wants are some crumbs. From the rich man's table. 
the dogs come and lick his sores. And then verse 22, the beggar died. Think about the entrance of his spirit into Abraham's bosom. He leaves this world of suffering and sorrow for him. It is a world of woe. He has been so miserable at times, so hungry at times. But now, look where he is. He is now in the presence of Abraham's bosom. In fact, that's what the Bible says in verse 22. He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That's a really big deal to think about the spirit being carried away from this world of woe into a world of comfort. On March the 4th of 2016... My mother, who lived at my house, said to my dad and to me and the rest of the family in the living room, I can't breathe. And we went to assist her, and my mother would stand up, and then she'd sit down. She'd stand up, and then she'd sit down. She was very agitated. I said, Mother, Mom, are are you having a panic attack? She said, no, I'm dying. And I thought, how could she know that? She doesn't know that. You just think you're you're dying. You're, You're going to be okay. But within two minutes after she said that, she slumped in my dad's arms, and though he tried CPR, I tried CPR to the best of our knowledge and ability. We called 911. Long story short, she died in that room that I walked by every night on the way to my room to go to bed at night. And I told a fellow preacher friend of mine years ago about how difficult that was because every time I walked by that room, I was remembering and revisiting, rehearsing the scenes that occurred in that room in my mind. And it was very difficult And he said something to me that I don't know that he knows to this day how much it helped me. He said, next time you walk by that room, remember angels visited that room. What do you mean by that? If If this verse is an indication of what happens to our spirit when we die, it says... In verse 22, the beggar died and was carried. His physical body wasn't carried. He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. His soul, his spirit was transported into the presence of Abraham who is in the presence of God. And so think about this, if you will, please. As this verse tells us, The rich man also died. Does he get an entrance? Oh, yes, but it's going to be far different than the one that is enjoyed by Lazarus. The rich man who had fared sumptuously every day and had the finest food you could find enters into a place where there's not even a drop of water available. That's what happens when in hell, Hades, the torment compartment of Hades, he lift up his eyes being in torments. He can see Abraham afar off and he can see Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. Your life's very different now than it was yesterday at this time, isn't it? Yes. When's it going to change for you, Mr. Rich Man? There is no indication in the text that it ever would. He had lived it up and had so much wonderful things going on in his life, and now he is in the midst of torment. It's not enough to have good things in this life. You've got to get ready for the things of the next life. And that way, the day you enter in, whether it be by death that you enter in, in some sense, dying is to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. In some sense, Paul knew that his death would put him in what he called, quote, far better place or far better position And there's so, yes, even before the judgment day, there's a sense in which the departed in Christ individuals are entering into a place that's vastly different than this world of woe. I remember so vividly standing at my mother's gravesite and preaching or attempting to preach her funeral. And I remember very vividly saying this. The burial that's about to take place here is something that we can manage as a family because my mother's already been buried. She was buried in a watery grave of baptism as a penitent confessing believer. And when she did that, she entered the kingdom. She entered Christ. Baptism puts us into Christ Galatians 3.27, Romans 6.3, my mother was baptized and put into Christ. And on that occasion, she entered into the kingdom of Christ, the church that belongs to Christ. And so, consequently, when that day comes, the final judgment day comes, and the events of that day transpire, she'll be ready to hear the words enter in because she already did. Now that brings us fast forward to the day itself that we usually think of when we think of the day we enter heaven. We think of judgment day. Do you know that there is a day appointed? I know this because of Acts 17. And Acts 17 in verse number 31, here's what we read. Because he, this is speaking of God, he has appointed a day. What, what's, going to, what's the day that he's appointed to be? He's appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And he's given assurance unto all men in that he's raised him from the dead. Mark this down. It's guaranteed that the judgment day has already been scheduled by Almighty God. There's a day appointed. Now, do I know when it is? Do you know when it is? When will the day come that we enter heaven? Tell us, preacher, and I'm going to stand here and tell you, no preacher can tell you that. I have a preacher friend who's passed away, but when he was alive, he told me one night he's driving, listening to an AM radio station late night. It's religious programming. (coughs) This uh, preacher comes on the air, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, 
I've done the mathematical calculations. I've investigated all the pertinent scriptures. And I'm here to tell you right now, the world's going to end in three weeks. Three weeks and the world will all be coming to an end. Mark it down. And he went on like that for 28 minutes. Three weeks and the world's coming to an end. The end of his message, the radio announcer came back on and said, now if you really enjoyed this message and you'd like a copy of it, please write to us at this address and please allow four to six weeks for delivery. <laughs> hmm. Sounds to me like someone doesn't believe what they're preaching. Friend, is there a preacher alive that can tell you when the day will come that we will experience the judgment day show me the no I'll show you the preacher who speaks with authority on this go to Matthew chapter 24 and notice that Jesus the very son of God addressed this very issue and Jesus what did you tell us you told us in Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 42 watch therefore for you know not what hour your Lord doth come he even uses an illustration. He said, know this, if the good man of the house had known in what hour the thief was coming, he would have watched. He wouldn't have allowed his house to be broken into. But he says, you be ready, verse 44, in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. And so you and I need to be aware of the fact that no one knows the day. Look at Matthew 25, 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. The date setters have been wrong over and over and over and over again throughout history. They might get people all whipped up into a frenzy, but the Bible still says what it's always said. No one can tell you when the judgment day is going to be, but I can tell you what's going to happen on that day, the day we enter. For the Christian, this is the order of events really the order of events for all men to see. But here's the thing that is so encouraging for the Christian. Paul knew that Thessalon the people at Thessalonica needed some information and some encouragement. So he said, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now let me stop right here and tell you that there are a lot of folks in this religious world who go to 1 Thessalonians 4.16 as the supposed rapture verse. Where people who are righteous are raptured out while the wicked are allegedly left behind. And the movies have portrayed it in such a way as to say, well, hey, where'd Aunt Sue go and Uncle Joe? I don't know. Have you seen Aunt Sue and Uncle Joe? No. Where did they go? Their clothes are here in a hump, a pile, a heap on the, on the floor. But where did they go? I, I don't know. Ah, according to the doctrine, people are going to start trying to figure out where all these millions of people went. And that's going to drive them to the Bible. And allegedly they'll come to the Bible and say, oh, I see. They were raptured out while the wicked were left behind. So I guess that leaves us behind. I wish I were, I say I wish I were making this up, but no, that would make me a liar and I don't want to be that. But I wish I didn't have to tell you this is true is maybe the best way to put it. 
This doctrine is so believed, there's actually a website called After the Rapture Pet Care. Righteous people who are planning to be raptured can actually set up a situation with wicked people who are left behind to come and find their pets in the event of their rapture and take care of them for seven years. And then after you come home from your seven years up in heaven with Jesus to fight the bloody battle of Armageddon and to set up earthly kingdom on earth allegedly for a thousand years, I guess you take your claim check to these people. or well, They're going to be gone. I don't know what's going to happen to the pets then when they're gone. But you go and you find your pet and you get him back. And they've even got a little video of a a cat looking, you know, wistfully into the sky as their owner's being raptured away from them. There are people who are paying money for that, who believe that. Friends, that's nonsensical. The Bible says that there's going to be no separation of the righteous from the wicked by time. It's, it's going to take place on the same day. In fact, Jesus would put it this way. Yes, the, marvel not at this. The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. <coughs> if you'll look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, here's the order of things. He descends from heaven with a shout, voice of the archangel, trump of God, and here we go. The dead in Christ shall rise first. They're going to rise first, yes. And then we which are alive and remain. So what does this tell me? When the Lord does come back on the day that's been appointed for the judgment day, there will be some people alive. No nuclear holocaust is going to wipe out the entire wealth of humanity and and leave no one alive. There will be some folks alive when the Lord comes back, and they will see him come back, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air... And is he going to say when we get up there, what would you come up here for? We're going to live down there. Let's go. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So the concept is very clear. What's going to happen on the day that I enter into heaven, the day that you enter into heaven? It's going to be first started by the descending of Jesus, my Savior, with a shout, the voice of the archangel. I love that song and the lyric which says, Face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face, when shall it be? When with the word rapture here is being used to refer to joy, extreme joy. When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Let me slow myself down long enough and ask you to think about the moment you first look into the face of the one that bled and died for you. And hung for hours on Calvary's tree. Think about it. Think about getting to see him face to face. And then being told, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Imagine the extreme joy that's going to be yours as you realize 
You're leaving this world behind and you're going to a place where there is no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more disease, no more accidents, no more physical inhibitions or impairments. That's all gone. And we get to go to a place where we have new bodies because 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear that when I rise, I have a body. In fact, it's a spiritual body, but it's a body. Do I know exactly what it's going to look like and be like? I do not. Why? Because God hasn't revealed that much. I know that when we see him, we'll be like him. Because my Bible tells me that in 1 John 3 and also in Philippians 3.20. But I also know this, that when I plant seed into the ground, what comes up out of the ground doesn't look like what I planted into the ground. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15. I plant it into the ground so that it can come up. Death is not the end for the Christian. It's a means to an end. It is a stepping stone to a higher plateau. And that is why it's so exciting to know that when we die, that's not it. In fact, a soldier said as he was being shipped across to fight for his country, he said, look, I want to come home alive. But if I don't make it, if I die in battle and they ship my body back to this country, they will probably want to play taps at my gravesite, and that's okay. For military tradition, fine. But tell them that if they're going to play a song at my gravesite that best represents what I think that gravesite is going to be, tell them to play Reveille, the getting up song, because I'm getting up from that place someday. Jesus, you arose from the dead on the third day, yes. And what did that guarantee? It guarantees that you will too. You and I don't have to be afraid to die. Because Jesus conquered death, we walk with a man that has the keys to Hades and death. So I know there's going to be a resurrection on the day that we enter. I know there's going to be judgment. Who's going to escape it? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And so each one of us shall give account of, brother so-and-so, no, I won't. I'm giving account of B.J. Clark. Give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. I'm going to be at the judgment. No exemptions. No. This boy came up to his granddaddy on the porch swing. His granddaddy was sitting, reading his Bible. His grandson said, Granddaddy, why are you reading the Bible? What are you, getting ready to teach a class? Or He said, well, no, I'm just reading it. Well, why are you reading it? If you don't, if you don't have a class to teach, why are you reading your Bible? He said, well, I guess you might say, I'm studying for my final exam. And someday, the books will be opened, and the words that Christ has spoken will judge us in that last day. And oh, because we've lived according to his precepts, and we've done what he asked us to do to be saved, and we've lived to the best of our ability according to his divine will, then we die and we get to hear those words as we've risen from the dead, enter into the joy of thy Lord. And then what? There's no more goodbye. There's no more separation. We go and we get to be with Jesus forevermore. Oh, we are separated from some things, 
But they're the kind of things we would want to leave behind. Just like Lazarus was separated from hunger after he went into Abraham's bosom. Lazarus was separated from sickness after he went into Abraham's bosom. When we go to heaven, there's not going to be the C word ever spoken by a doctor in that realm. You have cancer, I'm sorry. And it's aggressive. You won't hear that. You won't hear the words, well, his obituary is in the newspaper. And his surviving relatives are. You won't hear that. The day we enter heaven is the day we leave behind this world and its woe. In fact, what does that song say? It, saw, it says, there is coming a day where no heartaches will ever come. No tears that will fill the eye. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. You've lived your whole life. Some of you are white-haired, and I'm getting there quickly to join you. Some of you have been around a few decades. And why have you been living your life? For what? What is the end of your life all about? What's the end result that you're aiming for? Why have you even been living the life you've been living? Because when you die... The only thing that will matter is not how much money is in your bank account or not in your bank account. The only thing that will matter is whether you're in Christ and blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. They have rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. I'm standing here tonight to tell you that when we leave this world and its woes, we indeed go to the place where we never ever sorrow, we never ever cry or have any heartache anymore. No one's crying in heaven because their mother just died or their father just died or their daughter is dying. None of that. No one in heaven is getting a social media post that says, have you heard the news about brother so-and-so? Oh, no. No, this can't be. No one's doing that in heaven, or will be doing that in heaven. That's going to be a time when, indeed, we'll be able to say, what a day, glorious day this will be, and it will be an unending day. There will never have been a day like it, and there'll never be any time anymore. Revelation 21 also tells us in verse 27 that the day we enter, we leave behind anything that defiles, anything that works abomination or makes a lie, all that's left behind. That's, that's the part the Bible does talk about getting left behind. Not people. It's true that some people won't be able to go to heaven because they weren't in Christ. That is why that point I made earlier as we start to give the heaven's invitation is so absolutely crucial here. You and I will never hear the words enter in if we haven't entered in. And how do we enter in? It's important to know how to enter in. So many people have been misled into thinking that if you just say a little prayer and ask the Lord Jesus into your heart, 
He'll forgive you and you'll be ready for heaven. Friends, I promise you, if I could find that in my Bible, I would preach it. But it's not in my Bible. It's not in yours either. The way that people on the day of Pentecost were told to be saved when they said, what shall we do, was not every head bowed. And when every head bowed, repeat after me, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I make you the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sins. Amen. That's not what we read. We read a gospel preacher inspired, gospel preachers inspired by the Holy Spirit were telling that crowd this, repent and be baptized. Who, how many of us should, every one of you, why should, in the name of Jesus Christ, well, what's the re, for the remission of sins? That is why we ought to do it today. Wouldn't it be great if someone here tonight came forward and said, you know what, I'm not in Christ, so I'm not in a place of safety, and I want to make sure on the day that he comes back, I'm ready to enter I want to hear him say enter in, but I know before I can hear him say that, I need to enter in. So I'm, I'm about to enter into the kingdom of God right now by being born of water and of the Spirit as a penitent, confessing believer. That would be sweet. We'd love to see it happen. Maybe you're a child of God and you've wandered away. And you're here, but you're not. I mean, your body's here, but your mind is, you know, you're fighting against what you know, and you, you're not really happy because you're not living up to what you know. And so you're going to church because you'd feel ultra guilty if you didn't, but you're not really enjoying it and experiencing the intended joy of being with God's people because deep down you know you're not ready to be with God's people. I close with this thought, and it's a vital one and a sobering one. On the day of Matthew 25's description of the coming of the bridegroom, how many virgins were waiting for the bridegroom to arrive? Do you remember how many virgins were waiting? Ten. Five of them are labeled as wise. Five of them are labeled as foolish. Why? They're friends of the same bride and waiting for the same bridegroom. Why would five be wise and five be foolish? The five wise virgins had taken extra oil in their lamps. The common Palestinian custom was, if you're going to be on the street at night, you have to have your lamp lit. In order to have your lamp lit, you have to have sufficient oil to keep it lit. The bridegroom would come to the bride's house where she was waiting with her bridal party. Then he would lead the bridal party in joyful procession to his house for the marriage feast. In the story Jesus told in Matthew 25, five of those wise virgins were asked by five of the foolish ones, give us some of your oil. Come on, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. If our lamps go out, we can't be in the group. We can't give you our oil because then we might not have enough. You go rather and buy for yourselves. And when those individuals were told to go buy for themselves, they did. And when they got back, it was too late. The door was shut. Open to us. Open. Come on. We're here now. We want to participate in the joy that you're having inside. We don't want to be on the outside of that. Friends, Jesus doesn't want us on the outside of that either. 
And so here is an opportunity tonight to realize, hey, wait a minute. That parable teaches me I could be sitting in the same place waiting for the same event and think that I'm ready only upon further review to see, oh, I'm not ready. I'm really not. But then there's also the joy of knowing you're ready. There's no better sleep at night than going to bed knowing even though you're not perfect, you're cleansed, you're washed in the blood of the Lamb, and He is going to take you home if you die in your sleep or if He comes back, whichever comes first. You're going home to be with Him. The day you enter heaven will be the day you get to be with Jesus and never have to say goodbye. Won't that be sweet? So, here's your chance. If you're not in that group, the group that's ready for Him to come, the ready for Him to say, enter in, because you haven't entered in, or you entered in and now you've left the place of safety, get back in the realm of safety, or get in that place for the first time, whatever your need may be, and do what you know you need to do, knowing that when He comes, you have the hope of hearing those precious words, enter into the joy of thy Lord. The day we enter, what a day that will be as together we stand and sing.